Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, Nehemiah chapter one. We began our study of Nehemiah last week by means of a brief introduction to the book and we read chapter 1. Now the introduction focused on explaining the regional political realities. (coughs) Pardon me, I've got a little persistent cough here. Um, The regional political realities at the time of Nehemiah because only with this information and context can we understand why the Persian king was so accommodating of Nehemiah in order for him to journey a thousand miles from the Persian capital of Shushan to rebuild the broken down walls of Jerusalem. In summary, I think we can say that when King Artaxerxes agreed to send his personal cupbearer, Nehemiah, to Jerusalem with his blessing, it was because it was to his and to his empire's benefit. The Persian Empire was now so vast, take a look at this map, so vast, that some of the larger nations that made up the empire had become very difficult to control. Egypt, for instance, had a heritage of being a superpower in its own right and it had always held dreams of creating its own empire. Being subjugated to a Persian king whose capital was a thousand miles away, whose culture was so vastly different from Egypt's, well, that was just intolerable. So Egypt was in a nearly constant state of rebellion, and they possessed the means and the ambition to be quite a problem for Artaxerxes. But in addition to Egypt other nations in and around Judah, especially immediately across the Jordan River to the east, the area called the Transjordan, they took Egypt's cue. And they were in a rebellious mood. And they too constantly challenged Persian authority. However, the Jews of Judah were generally friendly towards the Persians. And King Artaxerxes badly needed to maintain and even strengthen the loyalty they showed towards him. After all, the Jews had been rescued and released from their captivity in Babylon by the Persians. The Persian monarchs tended to be more enlightened, more tolerant of their subjects than the Babylonians, and so generally they gave most of the kingdoms and nations in their empire enough latitude to continue speaking their own language, continue worshipping their own gods, and as long as Persian law was obeyed, they could even institute their own cultural traditions and customs. A few years earlier, it was Artaxerxes who had sent Ezra to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to reestablish the Levitical priesthood, mostly funded by the Persian treasury. And so this show of generosity and kindness to the Jews created very good relations. And as has been the case, really for more than three millennia, the fortress city of Jerusalem was established in a strategically valuable location. That is why it has always suffered attacks and been at the center of the ambitions of foreign potentates. From Jerusalem, a strong military presence could deal with Egypt, 
the nations of the Transjordan, Arabia, even the territories of the the, the former northern tribes of Israel. And at the same time, an enemy that gained control of the city of Jerusalem could create major problems, and routing them out would be difficult and costly in terms of lives and resources. You know, even today, although on the one hand the battle over Jerusalem is about religion, on the other hand, its strategic location remains politically important because even though the names of the nations surrounding Israel have changed since the Bible days, the dynamics of desire for power and regional dominance by those nations has remained the same. Due to the advancement of military mobility and rapid deployment using modern technology, Jerusalem can control a huge area from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jezreel Valley to the east beyond the Sea of Galilee to the south to North Africa and Egypt. So the importance of who controls Jerusalem is at least as significant now as it was in Nehemiah's day. These thoughts had to have already been in Artaxerxes' mind well before Nehemiah's request to go to Judah. It's only that Nehemiah, who was a trusted and capable member of the king's inner circle, desiring to go to Judah, uh, rather to Jerusalem and to, to direct the rebuilding of the defensive walls, suddenly presented King Artaxerxes with the opening he was looking for. Wisely, he leapt at the chance and he offered Nehemiah every means of his support. Chapter 1 is short, so let's reread it to get our bearings for today. Turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, that's page 1131 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, It was in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the capital, that Hanani, one of my kinsmen, came out of Judah with some men, and I asked them about the remnant of Judeans who had escaped the exile, and about Yerushalayim. And they answered me, The remnant of the exile left there in the province are in great distress. They're held in contempt. The walls of Jerusalem are in ruins, and its gates have been completely burnt up. And on hearing this, I sat down and wept. I mourned for several days, fasting, praying before the the God of heaven. I said, please, Adonai, God of heaven, you great and fearsome God who keeps his covenant and extends grace to those who love love him and observe his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes be open so that you will listen to the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you these days, day and night, for the people of Israel, your servants, even as I confess the sins of the people of Israel that we have committed against you. Yes, I and my father's house have sinned. We've deeply offended you. We haven't observed the mitzvot, the commandments, laws or rulings you ordered your servant Moses. Remember, please, the words you gave through your prophet Moshe. If you break faith, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, observe my commandments and obey them, then even if your scattered ones are in the most distant part of heaven, nevertheless, I will collect them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen for bearing my name. 
Now, these are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and strong hand. Adonai, please, let your ear now be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who take joy in fearing your name. Please, let your servant succeed today and win this man's compassion, for I was the king's personal attendant. The name Nehemiah, Nehemiah, in Hebrew, means the Lord comforts. It was not an uncommon name. We're going to find a number of Nehemiahs in the Bible, including two more in the Ezra and Nehemiah scriptures. The only way to sort them out is by family ties, if it's stated, and by the era in which they lived. The opening words of this chapter chapter make it clear that the primary writer of this book is Nehemiah, Nehemiah himself, even though it is indisputable that at least one editor has been involved in creating this book in its final form like we have it today. That probably wasn't completed until around the time of Alexander the Great, about 330 B.C. The year our story begins is 446 or 447 B.C. And it's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign over the Persian Empire. Once we reach the 13th and final chapter of Nehemiah, the time could be as late as around 410 B.C. So as we discussed last time, in Protestant Bibles, since the early 19th century, Nehemiah represents the end of the Old Testament timeline. And so there's a glaring gap of information on the progress of the Jews, the happenings in the Holy Lands, from that moment until the opening of the New Testament. Now, as I explained in our first lesson on Nehemiah, this four-century gap, or the so-called silent period, was artificially created when the British and the American Bible Society leadership decided to remove the 15 books of the Apocrypha, which dealt with the time in between Nehemiah and the birth of Christ, from Protestant Bibles. I want to make it clear, however, that I can find no evidence that at any time in history has any group, Judaism or Christianity, regarded the Apocrypha as Holy Scripture, nor as highly inspired as the canon that we find in our Protestant Bibles today. And I enthusiastically agree with that assessment. That said, Jews and Christians did regard it as somewhat inspired, something more than mere literature, as truthful and accurate and supremely relevant to the progress of the Jewish people and to the history of the Holy Land. It is the relevance to the Jewish people and the insufficient relevance to the Gentile church, as well as the position of the Catholics, that the Apocrypha continued to hold a firm place in the Catholic Bible, which seems to have led to its demise in the Protestant branch of the church. But make no mistake, it's not only the Catholics who've retained it. Most of the many Eastern Orthodox branches of the church have kept some or all of the books of the Apocrypha in their Bibles. Now, although originally the books of the Apocrypha were scattered about in the Bible, 
Later the solution was usually to gather those 15 books together and make it a separate section of the Bible so that it is understood that it's not on the same spiritual level as the Old and New Testaments. My position is that the Apocrypha is important. It's relevant and it ought to be read by believers in Christ. It goes a long way towards explaining the rise of Hellenism and the enormous Greek cultural influence over the Holy Land in Messiah's era. It explains how Judaism came to adopt many paganized traditions. And from that, we can deduce how some of those traditions eventually found their way into Christendom. This Greek cultural influence has also invaded the Western church and it greatly colors the way we read the Bible today. So we need to be aware of it. That said, there are some Jewish superstitions included in the Apocrypha and some twists on earlier biblical history that has to be taken with a rather large grain of salt. But never should it be taken as infallible nor should it be taken as holy. I recommend the English translation of all 15 books of the Apocrypha as written by Edgar J. Goodspeed as an accurate and readable text. Now we immediately run into a challenge. In the very first verse of Nehemiah, as we're told it was in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, that Nehemiah learned of the distress of the Jews in Jerusalem. And the issue is that in the first verse of the next chapter, chapter 2, we're told that after Nehemiah heard this bad news from his brother Hanani, he went to the king, but that this occurred in the month of Nisan in that same 20th year. Now for those of you who know anything about the Jewish biblical calendar, Nisan is the first month of the year, Kislev is the ninth month. Let the math work on you a little bit. So we have Nehemiah going to the king in the first month of the year, knowing about the distress of the Jews and asking to be sent to Jerusalem, which is eight months before his brother told him about it in the first month of that same year. Rather, I meant the ninth month of the year, knowing that it's um, uh, eight months before his brother told him about the first month, uh, told him about the problem in the first month. I want to tell you, some of the higher critical scholars have used this discrepancy to say the book of Nehemiah is flawed. It's flawed. It's not reliable. How can these dates possibly be right? Everybody knows Nisan comes before Kislev. Now it seems we need a little bit of instruction in the use of biblical calendars if we're going to understand this. So buckle up. This is going to get a little bit technical. Just hang in there with me because you're going to enjoy this and you're going to learn something from it. It's going to help you to read your Bibles a lot better. The Hebrews have several different calendar years, each one used for a different purpose. There's the religious event calendar year, there's the civil calendar year, there's the tithing calendar year, and a couple of others. I don't want this to throw you. We have the same thing with modern calendars. We have the civil calendar year, which is January through December. 
But we also have a school calendar year, which varies depending on where you live. We have what's called a fiscal calendar year. This is generally used only for business accounting. It can start any month a business chooses as long as it remains consistent year to year. We have an agricultural year calendar and a few others. In the Bible, we in addition to all this have years based on the reigns of kings. And to confuse it even more, there's at least five different ways that the king's regnal years were counted. So what we are dealing with in the opening two chapters of Nehemiah is two things. King Artaxerxes' regnal calendar, meaning it indicates how many years he's been ruling as king, and also the Hebrew calendar that tells us what month of the year that we're dealing with. And as time went on, thankfully, the ways that kings counted their time in office generally reduced to what scholars call the Tishri calendar. And that's because the Tishri calendar year method was created by the Babylonians, not the Hebrews. The Babylonians controlled a vast empire that was eventually taken over by the Persians, but the Hebrews only controlled little Israel, and then only littler Judah. And so the Tishri calendar created by the Babylonians became much more widely adopted than the Hebrew calendar. Now, what does all that mean? The Tishri calendar simply means that the month of Tishri was designated as the first month of the year. But on the Hebrew calendar, Tishri was originally designated in the Bible as the seventh month of the year. In time, the Jews acknowledged this near-universal use of the Babylonian Tishri calendar by creating the man-made traditional Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah, also known as Jewish New Year. Rosh Hashanah is the first day of Tishri. But biblically speaking... The first day of Tishri had already been a God-ordained appointed time, one of the seven biblical feasts that was assigned to it. And that day was Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. So now we have the confusion that on the first day of the month of Tishri, it's Rosh Hashanah, the start of a new year, yet the first day of Tishri is also the Feast of Trumpets, which is supposed to take place on the first day of the seventh month of, on the, of the seventh month of the year. So, oh, this gets worse. When Passover rolls around in the month of Nisan, and the Bible says that Nisan is supposed to be the first month of the year, and Passover is to occur on the 14th day of that first month, on the Tishri calendar, Nisan becomes the seventh month of the year. So the Hebrews are said to have a religious calendar that begins with the month of Nisan. We'll go back to this one. Back. Nisan. See here? This is the biblical religious calendar. There's the month of Nisan it begins by. And also a separate civil calendar that begins with the month of 
Tishri. But it gets worse yet. Because, according to the Bible, the year advances by one, say from 2014 to 2015, which is going to happen here in a few more weeks, on the first day of Nisan. But the Jewish civil calendar year changes years on the first day of Tishri. You wonder why you have trouble with biblical timelines? And most Hebrew calendars that are sold today shows the Hebrew year changing on the first day of Tishri. So while in the Bible, Passover is described as the very first, the very first feast in the first month, and Sukkot is the final feast, Tabernacles it says here, but that means the Feast of Tabernacles, is the final feast of the year, With this new Jewish civil calendar, it's Yom Teruah, which is the first feast of the year. Let me find that up here. Pentecost. This becomes the first feast of the year. And the final feast of the year becomes Shavuot. I'm sorry. Uh, Where? Let me get this straight. This is hard. First feast of the year. Yom Teru. Here we are. Right here. This becomes the first feast of the year. And the final feast becomes Shavuot. Pentecost. That's kind of screwed up, isn't it? I mean, it's really awful when we start messing with God's timing. Suddenly, we're switching seasons. We're doing everything. It makes discerning years and sequence of events in the Bible very difficult. The bottom line is, as concerns the matter of timing in Nehemiah, obviously the calendar is being the calendar being referred to as what's called a Tishri calendar year. So in chapter one, verse one, Tishri is the first month of the year. Then Kislev is the third month in the. 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. And in chapter 2, verse 1, that makes Nisan the 7th month of the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. And this solves our dilemma. Because in the bottom line is, it's four months from the time that Nehemiah, his brother, tells him about this dilapidated condition of Jerusalem until Nehemiah brought wine to the king and informed him of his desire to go to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, we could probably all use a glass of that wine that he brought (laughs) King Artaxerxes right about now. But you need to know this. You need to know this. Um, All throughout the Bible, they're switching around calendars. And we have to discern which one it is. And after Babylon, after Babylon, 98% of the time, it's the Tishri calendar. The one that begins with what God said is the seventh month of the year. Now we're told in Nehemiah 1.3 that the walls of Jerusalem were in ruins. The gates were burned up. And then in verse 4, this news brought Nehemiah to tears. And he mourned for several days, we're told. 
One of the issues that scholars point out and have various opinions about is whether the walls of Jerusalem were newly destroyed or whether this is referring to the damage that Nebuchadnezzar had inflicted 150 years earlier and had never been repaired. Now I'm not going to deal with all the arguments on both sides except to say this. The book of Ezra confirms that while Ezra tried to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem, he essentially only succeeded in rebuilding the temple. The main argument put forth that the damage that Nehemiah heard about was new and that Ezra did rebuild some or all of the walls, but they were again in ruins, is that Nehemiah reacted so strongly to the news, it had to have been new damage. That's it. There is no biblical or historical record of the walls of Jerusalem being rebuilt before the time of Nehemiah. And there is no biblical or historical record of any kind of the walls being rebuilt and then brought to ruin yet again after the Babylonian exile. It's purely the conjecture of modern Bible scholars. Therefore, there's no reason to doubt that since the king of Babylon destroyed the walls of Jerusalem around 600 B.C., that they had not been rebuilt, or at least anything but partially. But Nehemiah was about to make this happen. The lack of protective walls also explains the poor economy of what should have been a prosperous city. And it also explains why so few people lived in Jerusalem that Nehemiah had to nearly compel some country folk to move into the city. Now verse 5 begins a prayer. It's a prayer of supplication and confession by Nehemiah. And we see that this powerful man and the Persian government who had been born and assimilated into the Persian culture, or he would not have remained living in Persia, but rather would have migrated to Judah, he was not only religious, but the prayer shows he was quite familiar with the Torah. I suspect that this was probably due to Ezra's teaching and influence. I mean, after all, Ezra was also in some type of service to King Artaxerxes, and Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. Even more, we see Nehemiah speak of the Lord in both Hebrew terms and in Persian terms. Where in our complete Jewish Bible, the first words of verse 5 are translated as, I said, please Adonai, God of heaven. What it actually says is, please, that is, Nehemiah calls God by his formal Hebrew name, Yahweh, but then he continues with a standard Persian term for the highest God of their pantheon of gods, God of heaven. Nothing wrong with this. It only indicates that Nehemiah was as much Persian as Hebrew in his ways and in his thoughts. That should be expected. Now it's interesting that Nehemiah's appeal to God was based on the promises of God's covenants to the Hebrew people. Also it's based on the inherent grace contained in those covenants that is extended to all who love the Lord and obey His commandments. Which commandments? The law of Moses, of course. Because there existed no other divine commandments for the Hebrews. You see, it's fascinating to me that essentially Nehemiah is appealing to God on the basis of his Hebrew roots. 
and he is defining who God is based on God's attributes and his actions, which are based on God's covenants with the Hebrews. Nehemiah was born in the Persian Empire, well after the Jews had been freed from the Babylonians. He lived far away from the temple, far away from the priesthood, therefore far away from Torah teachers. And instead, he lived in a Gentile world where the diaspora Jews, such as himself, embraced a form of early Judaism that had replaced certain elements of biblical worship and observance with new traditions that served to pacify the Persians while appealing to the Jews as good enough, if not downright pious. And yet, as this sudden awakening to the plight of God's holy city of Jerusalem and his Jewish residents swept over him like a tsunami of living water, he immediately knew to turn to God. And he also realized that turning to God meant coming to Him on His terms and within the context of God's commandments and instructions. Now I hope this last statement pricked your ears. Because so much of the modern church has become deaf to God's Word. Instead, it's assimilated into a type of Christianity that is based on traditions, syncretism with pagan observances, and wed to tired old man-made doctrines. I mean, we have been oh so comfortable and satisfied with these strange ways for a long time. But suddenly, a whole crop of new Nehemiahs are popping up all around the world, awakened by a concern for Israel, for God's Jewish people and a burning desire to recover His holy word in our lives. Just as Nehemiah turned to the Torah and to his Hebrew roots in preparation to serve the Lord in an exciting new way, so must believers in the modern era. Just as Nehemiah, we must let go of those weak and questionable definitions and attributes of God ascribed to him by human religious leaders. And we need to discover him anew within the pages of the Hebrew Bible and especially the Torah. Our concern must be turned towards what he says in the scriptures is the most important thing to him at this time in our history. The restoration of the people and nation of Israel. And then from this, our understanding of the New Testament will grow and change. Our faith will be deepened. It will be made pure. Our relationship with Christ will mature and it will ripen, making us useful in service to Him now and ready to be harvested at the last trump. Note that in verse 6, Nehemiah, similar to Ezra, completely identifies himself with his people and with their sin. He confesses first that the source of the troubles for Israel is with the people being disobedient to God's commandments. Nehemiah's prayer is intensely personal because he admits that both he and his direct ancestors bear blame and leaving no doubt 
that what he and the Jews are violating aren't Judaistic customs and traditions. He directly refers to the laws and rulings given by Moses. Then in verses 8 and 9, after confessing the sins of he and his people, and that doing so was to break the covenant that they had made with God, Nehemiah draws attention to the consequences. It is that even though they remain redeemed, Israel was scattered throughout the nations and left to wallow in the curses that come from God from breaking God's commandment. However, this sad reality is balanced with the other side of the divine coin. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Because if, after being exiled for breaking faith, the chosen people will return to God and begin to recover and observe His laws and commandments, then the Lord will go. He will gather His people from wherever they've been flung on this planet and bring them home. Or as the verse says, I will collect them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen for bearing my name. Where is that place? Jerusalem. I mean, there's so much here to examine. First of all, the people who transgressed against God, those who refused to obey His laws and commandments, were not pagans. They were His redeemed people. They knew who God was. And they believed in Him. And God knew them. Because He was their Redeemer. But their redemption didn't amount to a get-out-of-jail-free card. It didn't amount to an immunity from prosecution. See, that is, the Hebrew people didn't obey their way to redemption any more than do folks today who count on Yeshua for their redemption. Yet when the redeemed of God disobey God's commandments to a great enough degree, the discipline from the Lord can become extremely severe. While with Israel and Judah, the severity amounted to expulsion from their land inheritance into subjugation and oppression by Gentile nations who did not fear the Lord. Paul issues a similar warning to those who were redeemed by Christ's blood. In Romans 11.22 he says, So take a good look at God's kindness and His severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. But on the other hand, God's kindness towards you provided you maintain yourself in that kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Second, we find that Nehemiah understood that a covenant has two sides to it. Blessings and curses. If one violates the stipulations of the agreement, then the curses kick in to operation. If one keeps the terms of the agreement, then shalom. Blessing will be the result. For God's redeemed, the curse was usually not complete or permanent rejection by the Lord, not even loss of redemption. 
Rather, it was to have one's status with God severely reduced and for blessings to be curtailed. Christ put that dynamic in another way in a most familiar passage to Seed of Abraham and to Torah class followers in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Don't think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you, until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So, whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, they will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the formula, Old Testament and New Testament, is that for those who have been redeemed, we are obligated to follow the Torah commandments. For those who obey those commandments and teach others to obey those commandments, their status in God's kingdom will be elevated. For those who disobey those commandments and teach others to disregard them, Christ says their status in God's kingdom will be severely reduced to the lowest level. The exiles of Judah didn't lose their redeemed status as members of God's kingdom for their disobedience. And as believers, we don't typically lose our redeemed status as members of God's kingdom for disobedience. In fact, if either group disobeys but comes to their senses, acknowledges that the trouble is disobedience to God's commandments, not to some religious doctrines or some personal sense of right and wrong, and we change our ways and turn back to obedience, then He will return them, us, to our normal status in relationship with Him. Nevertheless, there are earthly and eternal consequences for disobedience, especially when coupled with teaching others that God's commandments are irrelevant to them. So, Nehemiah understood that the only hope for himself and for his fellow Jews was a complete return to obedience to God's Torah. Nothing else would substitute. It's obvious that almost all of what Nehemiah claimed in his prayer were paraphrases, some were close to verbatim, of passages from the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 4. You don't have to turn there. When the time arrives that all these things have come upon you, both the blessing and the curse which I presented to you, and you are there among the nations to which God, Adonai your God has driven you, then at last you'll start thinking about what's happened to you. And you will return to Adonai your God and pay attention to what he said, which will be exactly what I'm ordering you to do today, you and your children, with all of your heart and all of your being. At that point, Adonai your God will reverse your exile. He'll show you mercy. He will return and gather you from all the peoples to which Adonai your God scattered you. If one of yours was scattered to the far end of the sky, Adonai your God will gather you even from there. He will go there and get you. 
Now third, only after acknowledging his and his people's sins and the covenant relationship that is the basis of everyone's personal relationship with God and that God keeps his promises whether those promises are negative or positive Nehemiah then petitions Yehovah for his own success as he prepares for an audience with King Artaxerxes verse 11 says now please be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who take joy in fearing your name so the implication is Nehemiah had some prayer partners he didn't go with this alone my only comment on this passage is this it honestly shocks me sometimes that the prayer request list may sometimes have only a few requests on it shocks me I don't know why that is is it pride is it fear of embarrassment is it just being a very private person could it be that most folks have nothing of importance in their lives to even bring before the Lord that hardly seems likely see I know of some of the troubles that some of you who are listening to me are having and of the troubles of some of your children and your grandchildren even parents and friends I know that you pray to the Lord for his intervention and his help so why are you going it alone why aren't you asking for the hundreds of prayer partners available to you to join with them are the prayers of many more effective than the prayer of one? Yes. Over and over we see that principle in the Bible and here in Nehemiah it's also brought to light. Enough said. This chapter ends with the comment that I was the king's personal attendant. It was quite a personal achievement for Nehemiah to achieve such a have achieved such a lofty position and it shows as with Daniel and Esther and Mordecai and others that the Jews of the Babylonian exile were not usually treated with prejudice rather it is that several Jews had been elevated to surprisingly influential positions in the empire's government was some belonging to the king's royal court so it brings brings us right back to the question I asked last week what would ever possess a man of Nehemiah's education wealth and status to throw in his lot with his fellow Jews in a remote place where he had never visited what could cause him to do that? This narrative seems to indicate that it was kind of an accident that Nehemiah even heard about the decrepit condition of Jerusalem and the distress that this was causing the, the, the Jews of that area. But quite illogically, this news so overwhelms Nehemiah, he can't hardly bear it. He determines something must be done and that it can only be the God of the Jews who has caused this improbable set of circumstances to come about that he must be the one 
to step forward. He's fully aware that this is going to mean great changes in his life. He is going to leave the luxurious, prestigious, secure confines of the king's palace for a place far away, a place he knows little about, except that the people living there can barely make it due to the ghetto-like conditions and the precariously unprotected population that's currently Jerusalem. But he recognizes that this is God calling him into service. Service that he had never imagined for himself. But that he had been, unsuspectingly, prepared for it over the last many years. Now Nehemiah had a simple choice to make in response to the Lord calling him to a radically new vocation and lifestyle. The choice was yes or no. That is the choice that every believer, all of us, has been or eventually will be faced with. What's your answer?